The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by INS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Alan R. Stevenson, is the author of the book, I Had to Die to Learn How to Live. Alan died of a heart attack on February 26, 2010, while on a city bus en route to work during a major snowstorm. He spent what seemed like a day's worth of happenings on the other side, yet returned several minutes later, having been given a task once he made the choice to return. Alan describes the assignment here as the lesson of being, with a capital B, in a physical world. He says our blind spots are many, and knowledge of what is truly important, very little. Much in the same way that we know little about uh, and do not understand death, the same is also true of life. And Alan writes, when I came back, I fell into love with all that there is from all that I had learned. Alan, welcome to NDE Radio. Oh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Lee, and hello. Um, I'm very truly, exceptionally honored to uh, be a part of this and be a part of your show and to actually get a chance to finally meet you, Lee. Well, this is uh, this is great for me too, Alan. Perhaps we could begin with your description of um, of how that heart attack occurred and uh, and what you saw on the other side. Um, I mean, you know, first, I, I mean, I, I'm a heart attack survivor first and foremost, um, and heart attacks still rank number one, uh, the number one killer on the top ten list, and you can pile the next nine into one total category of deaths, and, and they don't even come close to scratching the surface of what uh, that heart attacks, you know, how many lives they take on a year-to-year basis. Um, so heart attacks are, are something that people really need to become aware of. I was in the throes of having a heart attack for three days, and of course, this is what happens because it's a new experience, and so many people die because they don't understand exactly what's happening to them. You know, like I had the discomfort and the all the symptoms, but of course I wasn't aware. I was 47 years old at the time when it took place, and I mean, had I known, I don't know exactly. I, w- I wouldn't have traded the overall experience for anything, mm. but there's far too many people that that aren't that lucky that that continue on. Uh, well, well, was not only your the fact that you were having a heart attack, but that you trudged through a very heavy snowstorm to get the bus. Which exacerbated the whole situation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, the the snow was... Uh, this happened in the Niagara region of uh, Ontario, Canada, just outside of Niagara Falls. And in 1977, I mean, we had the winter of the blizzard of 77, known more by Americans uh, with what took place in Buffalo. But the Niagara Peninsula of Canada was actually heavier hit because our snow had piled up. Uh, it was coming off the lake in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, that it piled up and it actually buried the telephone line. So that was quite deep snow uh, back in 77. But this blizzard that took place on February 26, 2010 in the Niagara area was um, kind of reminiscent of that time period. Um, you know, I was a child in, in the uh, the first one, but this one here was very bad. There was no What's... no cars. There was no cars out. There was no people out. There was no businesses open. There was nothing. And... Once you... 
I was going to j- jump you to the bus and say, what happened when uh, when it finally hit you on the bus? Yeah, well, when I got to the bus stop, I, I made it. I finally made it to the bus stop, and then I thought I was going to be okay because, I mean, within myself, my soul was screaming at me to get help, and I mm. I didn't know. I I felt okay once I come to the stop and the rest at the at the bus stop waiting for the bus, and then once I got on the bus, I had put the change in the uh, the coin acceptor. And the bus lurched in the snow, and that's when either something physically within me had finally finished the 100% clog within the uh, left descending inner ventricular coronary artery, and had totally closed it off. And I was in complete physical distress, as long as with uh, mental and um, soulful distress as well. Um, and it, and it, you know, I quickly headed downhill from there. Um, I knew that something drastic was was going on, and here you start conflicting with yourself to ask for help because you know that something really extreme is happening and you need to reach out for help. So I'm debating with myself internally while my physical biology was was declining very, very quickly. Mm. And at the last, and I mean the last extreme moment that I had an opportunity to, I asked the bus driver to call 911. And all she did, she picked the phone up to call 911 and asked me why. And I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And, of course, I guess I had already started to turn blue at the time um, when that took place. And I looked back from the mirror, looking at her eyes in the mirror that sits to the front of the bus, the city bus. And I looked down at my feet, my hands, and that's I died. That was the moment that I died. And mm. directly after that, I slid from my body sideways to off to the right. And once I had slid, I was really somewhat aware of my body, but not in the sense that we are on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I became total consciousness, and the soulful essence of what we actually are is where my conscious focal point was. Mm -hmm. Shortly thereafter, and I was trying to take a lot of it in, in which I could still not see, but I was consciously aware of physical reality, but in a, a very different way. It was kind of like uh, the, a misty glass of a shower stall, and then you, you kind of rub a circle open, and that was all I could really see through that was clear, and that was more into the non-physical aspects that I could see clearly more into, and mm-hmm. everything that was physical was in that misty part of the glass, so to speak. Consciousness, when we become aware of stuff, is quite different um, than the way that we perceive physical reality through our eyesight, um, which is a point of where physical things register back on the brain and we become aware of them in that sense. But consciousness is very, very different, especially when you're in that soul essence that we actually are. Things become very, very different. And moment to moment, I was expanding and I was learning more and more and more. Understanding, I guess it's understanding, not learning, but understanding more and more as, as uh, time went by. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this tiger, a six-foot-tall-at-the-shoulder tiger, steps onto the bus right out of the snowstorm, and I was kind of like <laughs> taken back by that. I found this so fascinating when I saw it in your book. <laughs> this was a, a, a real tiger. I mean, a, a real tiger as far as you were concerned. Oh, yeah, in, in every way, shape, or form. And this, this... Individual soul or being, um, very, uh, very loving, very, you know, there's no real words to describe the presence and the essence of this being. 
I had met twice before in my life during very dark, hard times, in my late 20s and in my mid to late 30s. So I kind of knew who he was, but wasn't totally understanding why I was there, because here I had been overcome by the sensation, the, the loving essence, the freedom, the no pain, no anxiety, no um, emotional conflict of, of situation that I had just trans that had just transpired. You know, the heart attack, the physical, biological heart attack that took place. So here I am. I think in your book you describe this tiger as your soul guardian, almost like a guardian angel. Yeah, yes, and I, I believe that that being will probably present itself in in different forms for people's uh, perspective and perception, what what is understandable. Um, because you know, nothing is going to be of any help to us if we can't understand or perceive it. Mm. So I. I think that this is where you get from one NDE to another. You're going to get different forms and stuff, but that's where that individual soul's point of perception and perspective is at. So it's a it's a helping quality of the non-physical essence from which we come for them to help us. Right. Now you saw three other beings as well. Yeah. Well, I didn't really see them. It was much more of a sensation in the way that if somebody stands behind you in a physical sense, you kind of know that they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, that was being aware. And every time that I, I diverted my focal point of my consciousness in that direction of where I sensed that they were, it would kind of see them, but then they would disappear. And I would look mm-hmm. back towards Tiger and then off in what would be classified as a peripheral vision point. But of course, consciousness is everything. And this is what I mean by, my consciousness was expanding to the point of where I was understanding more and more and more that, you know, we perceive everything, we move our eyes, and, and this is where the focal point is, but consciousness is everything everywhere in, in, in essence. So I was aware that they were there, but then when I would divert my focal point to them, they would disappear, come back to Tiger, back to them, back to Tiger, and Tiger just said, it, it does not matter. That was lesson number one. I was struggling with it, and it was like, just just let it go, and it, it's fine. You don't have to focus on stuff that does not matter. That was lesson number one. Even though these three beings were very important to you. Oh, yeah, uh, extremely. The central being of the three was, in essence, the teacher, or I was going to say facilitator of the edification process that I went through, but Tiger was more the conduit, so I'm, I'm going to say that the central being, the teacher, was the facilitator, mm-hmm. and the other two beings present with that being were students of that being to hmm. evolve to the point of what that being was doing. So they were learning from from the from the center being, and I think you described them as possibly like a child of God. Yes. Uh, the uh, an essence of the consciousness of what is God, yes. So what did you learn from the three beings? Um, one of the biggest things is that, and I mean, I, I came up with, with quote after quote after quote after I came back. And one of the, the biggest ones that really has struck and stuck with me is the fact that each and individual, each and every 
human being individual on the planet is just kind of like a macrocosmic of biology in the sense that each and every one of us is a, a cell to the overall human race. Mm. And a lot of what they showed me is that what humans are doing to each other, that if biology did the same thing within one individual body, that body would die. And we are to learn the process of working together and understanding that one cell, though some components of it may differ, are identical and the same, and that we have not a job to do, um, but we have a need to work together to understand that the process and the evolution of the human race is actually the evolution of the soul. In a way, then, the errant cells are like uh, a cancer to the to the body. You got it. You got it. And we're doing a lot of damage rather than working together. Yes, correct. Very much so. But but you know when you when you think about the macrocosmic aspect of the whole human race, you know one culture is like the cells of the lungs because the cells of the lungs are much different than the cells of the liver, but neither are less important than the other. Mm. So this is where this judgment thing comes in, is that we judge one another for not being like us. And if all the brain, if if the brain cells wanted all the rest of the cells of the body to be just like them, that wouldn't be possible. If all the, the heart cells wanted all the cells in the body to be just like heart cells and, and on and on, which is what's taking place in, in uh, human society, sociology, um, which is nothing more than math psychology. But, so did your, did your teacher being have any solution for the damage we're doing to one another? Well, and that's part of what I wrote in the book, Lee. I mean, that book there, I, I wrote three times trying to get it down to a point to help people kind of lay a foundation point. I am in the process of writing a second book in that, to that, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be called Secret to Life, Lessons of an NDE, which is going to go a little bit more into depth and in detail in my coaching life that I coach uh, a lot of coaches and, and big-time uh, law of attraction and other personal life coaches uh, really trying to work to, you know, and I always say to them, I said, you know, I'm going to turn your life upside down just to put it back on its feet. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Alan, is this something you got into after your NDE, or had you been doing any of this beforehand? No. Um, I mean, I was always interested and fascinated by science and stuff like that. I mean, planets, I've had a, a huge telescope for a lot of years, so I was always interested in stuff like that. Um, the, you know, the whole writing aspect, I've really become a, a, a writer. And the funny mm-hmm. thing is that I was, I was a grade 10 high school dropout. You know, So some of the stuff that I, I write about really kind of makes people scratch their head and go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your book, you have thank you letters um, from people who you have helped uh, Apparently, through the insights that you gained when you were, uh, you know, having your NDE. Yeah. So I was wondering, is this something that happened just since um, the publication of the book, or did you jump right into that? And um, you know what, Lee, I, I I wrestled, and and I think that this happens to a lot of NDE uh, survivors in that that 
Mm-hmm. They kind of wrestle with the fact that it's so sideways from our understanding, from our physical life, physical life experiences, so removed that we, we struggle with trying to uh, incorporate it. And then we all get to a point where we just kind of let go and relish in the fact that we had that experience and that we understand a love that is really, truly, and honestly in a, in a written or a verbalization is not expressible. And then we start and learn, and you talk from one to another to another, like Avon Sneeton, who I've spent time talking to, and many others. And that love is is so extreme, but each one of us understands that that is our essence. That's the essence from which we come. That's the essence to which we go back to. And it's a process. The physical life aspect is only like half of the clock or half of the circle. Do, do you think, Alan, that um, the tiger and the three beings, those those are spiritual beings, but are they of the same body that we are made up of? I mean, are we yeah. all as, as different as they are, they, they and, and we are one and the same? Correct. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Now, before we get too far away from the tiger, um, you said – um, that you were given the choice the, the tiger said do you want to do you want to stay here or go back and you wrote if we uh we always um we always have a choice mm-hmm. and does that do you think that means that everyone who is dying has a choice as to whether to die or not yes I, I, and i truly believe that that's what they meant and I, and that was one of the things that i wrestled with me uh and it wasn't really until i stumbled on to an interview with Anita Moriani, who's the author of Dying to Be Me, had mm-hmm. said in an interview that she was given a choice to either stay there and continue onward in that soul journey back home, or to actually have a choice to come back here and live her life and live her life differently to kind of reset things. And she has totally blossomed, and so many other NDE experiencers uh, really blossomed after, such as myself. My writing became very mm-hmm. prolific, where I really didn't have a frame of reference to write the way that I do, and yet it has really shocked a lot of people, even on a PhD level. But, mm-hmm. I, and, and you know what, another thing is that we see accident victims and, and people with disease and whatnot that the doctors, the medical community, Turn around and say, "This, you know, this person is is going to die. They're medically. There's nothing else we can do for them. They're it's done and it's gone." We see accident victims that are just totally, on a biological level, just torn apart, ripped apart, and, and damaged beyond medical repair. And yet we see them survive. Yes, I see it uh, in the hospital on a fre- frequently. Frequently, right? And that's yep. a choice. I mean, surprisingly frequently, it's not it's not a majority of cases for sure, but but uh, more than you'd expect when doctors say there's no hope, and yet clearly there is because the they they you know a miraculous honestly, event occurs. Yes, yes, and and you know what, and I think that the terminology miracle is is true in essence because it it steps well above or outside of those physical world parameters of the medical 
condition. So the second it lands outside of that parameter is if we want to call it a miracle, by all means, I think we should. And, and at some point in the near future, I think that we will move towards a point of understanding um, what actually has taken place in the years. I mean, this whole start of what this co-founding, or the founding that I've done with uh, learning that of one day is to bring six NDE experiencers and put them on a stage in, in different cities for why? Because it that understanding is growing, and I think NDEers have the ability just to be just to be even not utter a word, and the people around them are affected just by their presence because of what we've experienced and what we've learned and the way in which we present our being, I guess that's the by, best way of... Boy, anyone that's, anyone that's been to an IONS conference knows that for a fact because you get a room full of 200 or more experiencers, near-death or mystical experiencers of some sort. It is a powerful um, event, even without someone <laughs> speaking about it. Just the, right. the energy in the room is enough to... Uh, to stop your watch or um, electrify your soul. Yeah, yeah. And and this is this whole founding of One Day. And, and the name One Day came up out of my head. I, I had asked a, a bunch of people to help me with the, the naming of it. And it just it clicked on me, just kind of like a message from the other side, is that one day each of our lives, the end of years, was dramatically and amazingly changed as we had slipped from physical reality to understand so much more. Um, and one day also represents the fact that each and every human on the planet is at one point or one day time during a specific day is going to slip from physical reality to head back home. Yes. And in that moment, in those few moments up to it and those few moments afterwards, so much is learned, so much is understood. Your tiger said, um, differentiated between what is important and what is not. And uh, what, how do you understand that? Um, you know, we distract ourselves. We, there's so much distraction going on today. Um, you know, cell phones and, and computer and Facebook and on and on and on. There's so much stuff. And we worry. We worry about so much little tiny stuff that we pour that energy, which is a flow through our essence, our, our soul being, and we pour that energy, that electrical current that flows through us into stuff that is unworthy of spending that energy on. So that's where the distraction is. If we pour that kind of energy more into helping a neighbor, helping a, a, a person uh, in need or an animal or a plant, doesn't matter if we start and redirect things to what is truly important, helping the human race understand one another from culture to culture uh, to, to really start and get along. Mm. So those are the things that, that are really important and that, you know, understanding that we're a loving being and that we have that choice to actually be that or to be whatever we actually are. Mm-hmm. And now we're actually making that choice to be that. Now, do you think those distractions, I mean, in, in some vocabulary, you might call it uh, evil uh, because it's so destructive to to our actual intended goal. It's almost like 
what turns a normal cell into a cancerous cell. Mm. Yeah, and and that is actually uh, a, a mitosis cycle in which the cell mutates. So, I mean, you know, a mitosis cycle is turning on your, your computer and really getting stuck mm. doing stuff that really absolutely means nothing. And, and, and it shouldn't just allude to the computer. I mean, it's so many other little mundane aspects of physical life that we pour so much energy into and we chew it up. And, and at the end of the day, somebody has actually really done nothing and, you know, they're totally exhausted, mm. totally exhausted. Do you think yes. uh, do you think evil is a is a viable term? What's your attitude toward that? Um, one of the big things that I, I try and stress with the, my clients, the coach and stuff like that, is that you know we always talk about positive and negative. You know, don't be so negative, or, or why are you so positive? And mm-hmm. positive and negative, really, not everything good is positive, and not everything bad is is negative. You know? Um. So I, I always relate the positive, negative things to the electrical essence of, of non-physical aspects of what we actually are, the flow of the, the soul that we actually are, and good and bad. Do I ever use the word evil? Very, very seldomly. Mm-hmm. Um, do I use evil? I do know from some of the stuff that I, that I was into, I'm trying to understand this ghost hunting and stuff like that, and then some of these ghost hunters that are out there that are always demonic or or evil, when in actuality those are just beings that are dimensionally shifted away from the dimension from which we actually come from. Right. So there, there's a there's a there's a large variety of beings out there, but a little not so much of understanding, but it, it presents itself as different. So in that difference, we go, oh, it's evil. Now, clearly, your experience changed. The direction of your life, but did uh, did you come back with any gifts that you uh, are aware of? Oh, oh uh, yeah, I, I became more aware of. I think that I always had the ability to uh, not so much hear the other side, so it's not a not an auditorial type thing with me. But when when we talk, when you and I are talking here and now, and the people that are hearing our voice, basically they're listening to a frequency is what they actually hear. Um, but our minds or our our essence actually puts it together in a image form. So when I say the watermelon sitting on the table, there's the images of the watermelon sitting on the table, and that's how we actually understand one another during uh, frequency conversation. And so I get images more from the other side, and sometimes I battle with trying to put those together. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff that, you know, very, very little prior to my heart attack and my NDE, after I became so much more aware of it that I... I get these um, image conversations, I guess is the best way to put it, image-based conversations um, from the other side. And then I have to try and disseminate. And now, since the heart attack and my NDE, I'm more free. If somebody's standing close to me, I, I almost know, like, there could be four people in front of me. Mm-hmm. The message actually is for one person, and I instinctively, for some reason, somehow know exactly who it's actually meant for. So, so, so I'm much you more gained, open to saying. Yeah, uh, you gained a psychic ability to some extent out of out of your uh, NDE. Interesting. Um, Alan, we are almost out of time, and I want to give you time to uh, tell the folks how they can get your book or get in touch with you and about your website. 
Okay. Um, the book can be purchased on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, .uk, in Japan. Either if you uh, purchase your books through uh, Barnes & Noble, it's available there through order online. You just look up uh, either Alan R. Stevenson or I Had to Die to Learn How to Live, the book title, and that'll come up, uh, and you can order straight through there. The publisher and printing in that is, is in Indiana, so anybody in the States can actually get a copy reasonably quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, website, com, which I'm actually in the process of transporting the website from one one location, so to speak, to another one. Uh, we're going into the names, but WordPress and Squarespace. <laughs> um, anyway, and the other thing that I really wanted to put out there is the one day, uh, NDE one day.com in our events in which we're going to be, we are having our first one in Boston, uh, September 23rd. Two weeks later, we're trying to set one up for New York City. Then we're going to be going to London, England or Manchester, England. That's uh, unconfirmed as of yet. And then we're going to be back to Orlando, hopefully over to Los Angeles, and then back to Miami, and that should pretty much top off 2017. Yeah, that's a terrifically ambitious but uh, wonderful plan you've got there, Alan. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Um, I want to thank our guest, Alan R. Stevenson, for sharing his story with us. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, Just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IONS and their upcoming uh, conference in Denver, check out that website at iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.